This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Each week, we bring you conversations with authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. One quick note before we start. We had a few technical difficulties with Tony E. Pryle's mic in this episode, but thankfully, Cheryl Tan comes in crystal clear. I hope it won't detract too much from this awesome interview. Okay, on with the episode. Hi, I'm Tony E. Pryle. I'm a teacher in the Low Residency MFA program. I teach fiction, and I'm delighted to be talking to Cheryl Lulian Tan, who is our All Leslie Reads visiting writer for the summer residency in 2019. And Cheryl is the author of the international bestseller Sarong Party Girls, as well as a food memoir, A Tiger in the Kitchen. Uh, Cheryl is from Singapore, and she holds a degree in journalism from Northwestern University. And uh, hi, Cheryl. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so Cheryl is both a, a journalist and a fiction writer. She's written for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she's had articles published in InStyle magazine, The Baltimore Sun, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and the list goes on. Cheryl, what led you to move from writing journalism to writing fiction? Well, I'd always thought that I wanted to write fiction. Um, I, I've been a voracious reader since I was as, as early as I could read. And uh, growing up in Singapore, um, if you've never been there, um, it's, a, it's a very small, it's a small island. Um, it's very cosmopolitan. It's very modern in many ways. Um, but when you're growing up there, you know, the way to see the world when you're not, you know, you're, when you're six, you're not going to be traveling the world, um, is to read. And I, I read as many books as I could. Um, my parents took me to the library every single week to check out as many books as the entire family could just for me. Um, and so I'd always thought, um, well, one day it would be wonderful to, to be able to write a book to introduce uh, a world in my head to other people. So um, I thought, well, okay, I'd love to write. And my parents, who are very traditional Chinese Singaporean parents, were like, well, how are you going to make money doing that? And so <laughs> I thought, well, okay, well, if I could be a, if I could show them that I could have a salary while writing, maybe they'll let me do it. And so I came up with journalism because I thought, hey, you know, those are actual jobs and, uh, you know, you would have a salary and you would work somewhere. And, uh, and they said, sure, okay, you'll, you'll go to J school first and then you'll, you'll, you know, you'll become a, you'll go to law school right after that. And that never happened. Um, I love journalism so much. Um, one of my first stories when I was uh, a high school intern at the national at the Straits Times, which is the national newspaper in Singapore, and I was I was only seventeen or eighteen at the time, and my boss somehow trusted me with this story. He said, "Hey, I hear there's this illegal puppy mill out there. You should go check it out." So me and this like photographer went and we checked it out, and he pretended he was my uncle, and we we're trying to buy a dog. He took pictures. I asked all sorts of questions, which uh, they answered because why would a teenager be writing a story for the national newspaper? And uh, so did you wind up with a puppy? <laughs> no, but it was terrible. It was so heartbreaking to see this puppy mill. And we ran the story, and within 24 hours or or very soon, the government shut it down. So right then I realized I was the power of words and the power of journalism. So I got into journalism. Um, my first job was at the Baltimore Sun. Um, I covered Sunday Cops. Uh, I loved it. I moved into features eventually. Um, and all. And I was a journalist full-time for many years at the Wall Street Journal, at InStyle, uh, covering fashion primarily, but also culture and the arts. And I sort of 
forgot about book writing along the way because I loved being a journalist so much. And then one day, after about 10 years of covering fashion, um, I started to, to get feel a little burnt out. And I started to think about food a lot because I, growing up in Singapore, I was I came from a very food obsessed culture. Uh, in Singapore, you know, you're barely done with lunch, and then you already start talking about where we're going to eat dinner or what we're going to have for dinner. And um, and covering fashion for ten years, I realized that I was I had surrounded myself primarily with people who actively avoided eating and food. <laughs> and somehow that made me really miss my grandmother's food and the food of my aunties and my mom. And it also made me realize that I'd never learned how to cook with my aunties and my, my, my mom and my grandmothers. And so I didn't know how to make the food that I grew up eating. So I took a break. I uh, went home and I begged my aunties to let me into the kitchen with them. And uh, they were very surprised because they had always tried to teach me how to cook. And I refused to do it because I had always seen that as something that my mother, like her mother and her mother, uh, her grandmother had to do in order to be a good wife. And when I was growing up, I said, I'm not going to do any of that. You know, I'm not going to do this good wife business. I'm going to grow up and write books. And uh, so when I finally begged to be let back into the kitchen, let into the kitchen, they were like, oh, now you want to learn how to be a woman. <laughs> it was very funny. But anyway, so they let me in. I, I learned how to make my late grandmother's pineapple tarts, uh, wrote an essay about it. And, um, and a book editor called me and said, let's turn this into a book. So somehow book writing bit me. It, it, it came back to find me, even though I'd sort of forgot about it or thought it might not happen. At this point in time, your grandmother was no longer alive. Had you cooked with her before or this was the first time you were really going cooking her recipe? Um, at this time, only one of my grandmothers was alive, but not the one who is pineapple tarts I really miss, which are these buttery shortbread cookies topped with pineapple jam uh, that she used to make. And she was this amazing cook, um, and she, but she died when I was 11. And I had refused to be in the kitchen with anybody before then. So I'd never cooked with her, but fortunately, my aunties did cook with her. And so when I went back to learn how to make her pineapple tarts, as I was leaving, it had been this incredibly rich experience over this one weekend. And I'd learned so much about my late grandmother just in those 48 hours uh, because they were telling me stories as they're telling me how to, how to cook. And um, as I was leaving, I, I was like, well, I can't believe this is over. And they said, you know, we have all our recipes. Anytime you want to learn something, just come back. So, um, so that was, that, I feel very fortunate. And my other grandmother is also an amazing cook. And um, I was very fortunate that um, I researched a book in that year that I did, because right after that, she started having dementia. And she, if I had even done it one year later, she wouldn't have remembered most of her recipes. So it really was kind of the right time. I believe in serendipity. So this book found me at just the right time. So the, this is, we're talking here about Tiger in the Kitchen, yes. and uh, this book was a way for you to uh, bring your grandmother back to life in a certain sense, and through, through eating, which is also how we experience uh, beloved parents, especially the women in, the, in our families. And um, this led you to go back frequently to Singapore. I know you go back uh, re regularly every year for about five weeks, but... You went back much more for that year than... Yeah. My whole family lives in Singapore, except for my sister who lives in Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, what I... What I, when uh, the book editor said, let's turn this into a book, I thought, okay, well, why don't we bookend it? So I went back from one Chinese New Year to the next Chinese New Year, and I hit all, I tried to hit the festivals, and I tried to, to um, like for Dumpling Festival in, during the summer, 
um, my family makes dumplings. And so I went back to make dumplings with them. And uh, Mooncake Festival, um, you know, my family, they're, they're maniacs. Like, they don't buy mooncakes. They make them. And so I went back and I learned how to make mooncakes with them. So it was sort of, but it really being in the kitchen with them um, was sort of this excuse to really get to know the women in my family. Because in my family is still quite traditional. Um, and the women are all really fierce women. But, you know, you ask them questions and they always go, oh, go ask your grandfather. Go, go ask your uncle. Like, you know, it's like the guys know the answer. It's like, go ask them. And they would always sort of deflect. But when you're in the kitchen with them and you're waiting for 90 minutes for something to happen, um, you know, you can ask them all the questions you want. And they're going to tell you those stories. And so it was really a way for me to... Um, through food, tell the stories of the women in my family. And I found out so much about them that I'd sort of ignored over the years because I was so focused on having a career and and the people in my family who were the role models for that were the men. You know, like, I'm going to do this and go out into the world and do that, um, like my dad or like my uncle. Um, as I, and, and the whole time I thought, oh, well, the, woman, they, the women, they just kind of stayed at home and, like, raised kids and cooked. But, you know, I learned, for example, my late grandmother, um, she had married into my grand, – my grandfather was the son of a very wealthy man. And so she had married into a very rich family. But then my grandfather's generation, when my great-grandfather died, they all fought over the money and squandered it all. So suddenly she was really poor. But she was very resourceful. So she opened a, an illegal gambling den at some point in the home. And I only found this out because I was walk on a walk with one of my uncles, and he said, you know, you should really ask your auntie, to t auntie Kaim to teach you how to make bong, which means like gambler's rice or gambling rice. And I was like, what is this? And he said, just go ask her. So she taught me. It's basically like this, um, this like one like one bowl dish of like rice with like cabbage and like some Chinese sausage and like various things in it. And so my grandmother, uh, to put food on the table and feed her family, uh, because my grandfather was not doing anything, um, she had this gambling done, but she didn't want the gamblers to get hungry and leave. So she started to cook for them, but she wanted it to be something really easy. So she started making this rice dish so they could hold the bowl in one hand and keep gambling. And so in my family, it's called gambling rice. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that little dish, like, said so much about my grandmother and how strong she was, how resourceful she was, how much she cared for her family. Um, and I never would have gotten to know that story if I hadn't been in the kitchen and been like, okay, teach me this. It's so interesting for me because growing up with, in South Africa with a German-Jewish mother and then moving to this country, to the U.S., the only time I would really get her stories about her life is when we cooked together in the kitchen. <laughs> if I sat her down like this and said, you know, tell me what happened in this, I would get, oh, you don't want to hear those old stories. We're in the kitchen. I said, hey, what about that person? Next thing you know, there's a whole long story. So yeah. I think it's, it's a fascinating element that food is both a way of showing love and also the preparation of the food as a way of sharing culture and stories, particularly women's stories. Yeah, and that's very true. I want to use this to segue a little into um, how you came to write Sarong Party Girls because this wonderful novel is a social satire with, uh, with quite a lot of sex in it <laughs> um, and some uh, very interesting attitudes that are, are not feminist in the, the way the protagonist presents them, but it's actually a feminist perspective on the life of, of women in Singapore. And I'm wondering a little bit like your experience of really getting to know your aunts and through them your grandmother, uh, how that then led you to look at uh, young women in Singapore and how they're dealing with the legacy of patriarchy and the legacy of colonialism that still exists in the society at, at large. 
Yeah, well, uh, Sarong Party Girls came about um, very organically as well. Um, I, it was another case of I wasn't f- I wasn't looking for it. It just sort of came and I don't know, bit me again. But I was um, so w- the, in the year that I went back to Singapore, um, I had been um, I was I, I would be in the kitchen with my aunties during the day and cook be cooking with them. And at night, I had reconnected with some of my childhood girlfriends, um, and I'd known these women since uh, we were six, and. Um, and they had um, they had done the good Singaporean woman thing and gotten married in their twenties, had children, and then all of a sudden in their thirties they found themselves divorced, and so they were back on the circuit, and uh, and so they said, you know, if you want to hang out with us, you know, come meet us at these bars and clubs, and so I would cook during the day, and then I would go and meet my friends at night, and um, and they started to tell me what it was sort of what it was like to be newly single and uh, and and out in, out on the scene again, and one of the things. I learned from listening to their stories was when we were growing up, like we would look at our great grandfathers and our grandfathers, and you know, in that generation, a lot of them had multiple wives or mistresses, etc. In my dad's generation, to some degree, there was that too—the mistresses, the girlfriends—and um, we always said, you know what? When it comes to our marriages, we're not going to do that. And then when I listened to some of the stories, I thought. You know, we might have had that progressive thought of not having those kinds of marriages, but the boys really that we grew up with really never changed. (laughs) And that sort of concubine culture, that cycle wasn't getting broken. And so that that sort of uh, that seed sort of planted in my head. And I started taking notes about a lot of things. Um, And one of the things they said to me was that really struck me was um, they had sort of jokingly said, well, you know, we did the marry the nice Singaporean boy thing and it didn't work out. Now we're now we're modern SPGs. And when I was growing up, being a sarong party girl was a really, really derogatory term. Um, it was, you know, like I would look into these SPG bars and like I would see these women like in like high heels and short skirts like in there trying to meet expat guys because that was their ticket to like the good life. And so you, you didn't want to be an SPG. But my friends were kind of regarding it jokingly, perhaps, but, you know, as a sort of way to be like, you know, we're modern feminists, like we're, we're going to like, you know, we're going to find men who can, who can, you know, handle independent women and, and not expect us to be in the kitchen and blah, blah, blah. And so I thought that was really funny um, because I'd also been thinking about this. I thought it said a lot about um, post-colonial sort of gender and racial politics in Singapore. And what does that mean? It's sort of, you know, it was so layered. It's like, um, you know, the cycle's not getting broken, but also, you know, trying to find a path to a happy life um, with a man who can accept that you're independent and doesn't want you to, you know, just be the little wife at home. Um, So I started to hang out with them. And then one night, one of them said to me, um, she said, well, you know, the point of this is to have a Chanel baby, and I'm like, well, what's a Chanel baby? And she said, well, it's a baby that's half Singaporean, half expat. It's a Chanel of babies. And <laughs> so I thought, okay, that right there just says everything about Singapore and this this like social group because it's materialistic, it's very direct, it's very practical, but it's also you know very questionable in terms of well, what are your values if <laughs> that's what you subscribe to? Um, so I thought there was just so much to unpack there. Um, and I went home, I wrote the word Chanel baby down, and I thought, well, I've got to write this book. And so that was so I started. That was when I started really thinking and really gathering notes and sort of anecdotes. And um, and I wanted the book to be. You know, it's 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 a very dark book, but I didn't want it to be didactic. I didn't want it to be like, you know, being a woman in South, in modern Southeast Asia can be terrible because you know the patriarchy still exists. Um, but I I wanted that to be conveyed, but I also wanted it to be funny. And so the situations in this book are 
kind of, they're, they're satirical, they're dark, they're comic, but they also, you know, things kind of spiral out of control and you're like, did that really happen? And, you know, it's, so it's kind of, it gets kind of crazy. Well, I can attest to the fact that the book is very funny okay. and I definitely uh, laughed aloud quite a lot reading it. And um, I think one of the interesting things about the novel is that Jazzy, Jazzalyn, the main character, is both her, her mind is both controlled by the, the patriarchal system she's grown up in, but she also subverts it. And the novel works this interesting tightrope where she's often an unreliable narrator, yet she's extremely observant. Uh, she falls into the category of the, um, the woman who is often submissive when it comes to, to sex and to other pressures, and yet who's also not at all submissive and also very powerful and a strong woman. And I, I think that you work with these dichotomies and paradoxes beautifully throughout throughout the novel. Um, your British publisher describes the novel as being a little bit of a Trojan horse. Can you explain that? Um, well, yeah, and I I loved I loved, I loved um, that they that they wrote that and said that because um, because it on the surface it can be seen as chiclet. I mean. Jazzy is, um, you know, a young woman who is out there. She and her three friends uh, are out there trying to find husbands. Um, you know, and in a way, you know, I, I love Jane Austen. In a way, it's like, you know, Emma set in, in modern Asia, um, you know, but it's about woman, a woman trying to better her station in life by finding just the right husband. Um, but so on the one hand, it can be kind of read as this kind of chiclet premise. But as you read it, um, you know, it's sort of, the, the the situations that unfold make you think, um, and and it, it really shows you kind of the ugly side or the not pristine side of Singapore, which I really wanted to kind of delve into because people think that Singapore is this squeaky clean place. Uh, when people find out I'm from there, they're like, you know, is it really true that you can't chew gum there, um, that you can't litter? And I'm like, well, you know, all of that's kind of true. But at the same time, you know, we we it's we have this. It's a very very complex city. It's a very complex country. Um, and I kind of wanted to show sort of the underbelly of Singapore a little bit. And so and the, the, so the novel really gets into that. So the Trojan horses, you might enter thinking, oh, okay, well, it's, it sounds like a chiclet premise. But as, it, as, it, as, it, as the novel unfolds, I hope, it's sort of, you know, things start to take a darker and darker and darker turn. And at some point you go, how do we get here? And, like, and I hope it makes you think while you're laughing at the same time. Well, I think what happens is we see Jazzy trying to hold on to her illusions uh, as they're being shattered around her, her, especially her illusion that she's in control. And that what makes her be in control is her willingness to jump into bed with people and be sexy and, and be a strong party girl. And we start to see that coming apart in her life. And that's, that's a very subversive approach because uh, I think quite a few readers wind up finding her unlikable for part of the book while sympathizing with her. Yes, I've, I've heard from uh, several people who would say that I, we just wanted to strangle her or be like, okay, like just shake her and go like, why do you keep doing, making these wrong decisions? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I think the, the, the book is really a journey for her. And she starts out sort of, you know, very stroppy, very, um, you know, just sort of very determined. And she believes she's right in this new goal that she set for herself. And, you know, as the book turns, you know, slowly, 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 she starts to the reader realizes how dark this world is, and she herself realizes that too. But you know, ultimately, you know, she realizes that she has control, and she just has to exercise it. Um, and so it's uh, you know, it's about 
self-discovery, redemption, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also, you know, I think it's, um, it's, a it's, something, it's a journey of learning, both for her and for the reader. Um, and I wanted, you know, people who, who read this to kind of get a sense of how, um, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that every Singaporean woman is a sarong party girl. Uh, I'm not saying there are a lot of them. I mean, there, there's a sizable number. <laughs> but, you know, but I wanted to really kind of highlight, like, what it can be like for some women in modern Asia when, you know, if you don't have necessarily the resources or the smarts to be, become a doctor or, you know, a, a CEO, or like, in your own right, and the choices that you might have to make sometimes. Well, you... Both show us the Sarang party girls, but also the women who didn't become Sarang party girls, have a tr more traditional life, and then they wind up being having husbands who have a second family, or they're the mistress, and in the case of one of the, the characters, uh, her mother, she learns her mother is not an, not an is there another wife, but there's actually the wife, and her mother is the mistress. Yeah, and actually, a lot of these stories, um, you know, this book, when I first started writing down notes and, and taking down notes from scenes and what the interiors of clubs look like and everything, I thought I would write it as nonfiction. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist, and my first book was nonfiction. And so I actually planned to write this as nonfiction, and I, I did research it a fair bit. And um, But when it came down to writing it, I've, I owed my agent a proposal, and it just wasn't coming out. And finally, in this panic, I literally I owed her something the next day. Um, I said, well, you know, I've just got to fight through this. Why don't, I, why don't I just try to write it as fiction and see what happens, see where it goes? And essentially, the first, what is uh, the bulk of the first chapter of the book is what I wrote that day because it came out in this flood. And, um, and Jazzy's voice came through loud and clear right away. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the right thing to do. And I sent it to my agent, and I thought that she'd be like, what is this? You're a nonfiction writer. And she said, keep going. So, um, so then it became, from then on, I was like, okay, I guess I'm working on a novel. <laughs> And this, this is a very voice-driven book, and you made a particularly bold and, I think, linguistically innovative choice in deciding to write the novel in Singlish, in Jazzy's voice, in the, in the Singaporean patois that, that she speaks. And not to provide any glossaries or cues for the reader beyond the, the context, uh, can you talk a little about both the decision to write in Singlish and the response you've gotten to that? Well, I was very nervous about it throughout um, because because Singlish is I love Singlish. I have a huge fondness for it. And in Singapore, we speak varying degrees of it. We code switch. So, for example, if I'm sitting around with my friends, like we'll speak one level of Singlish. If I'm, you know, in a, talking to my boss, I'll speak another level of Singlish. I might speak more proper Queen's English or whatever. Or you know, if it depends on the situation you're in. Um, so I was really, and Jazzy is someone who, and she does code switch a little bit in the book too, you can see that, but she primarily, especially among her friends, would be speaking a very sort of intense Singlish. And as I was writing it, um, I, was, I was very worried about this because I was worried that people would pick this up and go, you know, what is this? What am I reading? I don't understand any of it. But what, um, what I found encouraging was that my agent is not Singaporean. She's never been to Singapore. She, at the time, I think, knew just a few Singaporeans. And she said, I understand this. It's, you know, she's like, she understood. She said, I understand this. Just keep going. And the first version of, uh, the first draft of Sarong Party Girls was really hardcore. Like, I wrote it as I heard it. And I was nervous throughout, uh, so nervous throughout, I had put footnotes throughout the book explaining everything. And there were literally, there were so many footnotes. It was crazy. And so she looked at it and she said, get rid of all the footnotes. Like, it's stopping people. 
And I said, how are they going to understand it? She said, you'll have to make them understand it. So the revisions that we did, you know, a lot of them were about to do with the language um, and just sort of stripping it down a little bit. Like, you know, there's there are a lot of Singlish words that I love and and not all of them got used um, because it was kind of the strategy to, to use like a c- certain set of words. And then, you, you know, as you repeat them, you're like, oh, wait, I saw that in chapter one. I kind of know what it is now. And then after a while, you're like, OK, I totally know what that is. Um, but also it was building the narrative around the words. So even if you don't know what the exact word means, you, you, you know what it means because of the narrative that's been built around it. Um, so that was a lot of that. And um, and we fought really hard to not have a glossary. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that my publisher was understood and we don't have a glossary. I'm glad, glad you did that. My first book of short stories has a glossary and a friend who was looking at the table of contents goes, oh, I didn't know you wrote a story called Glossary. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it feels very strange writing... Um, very basic things of a life you know well and having to put that word in a glossary in the back. And I think the problem with it is once there is a glossary, people go to the back to look up the word rather than just staying inside the narrative and staying inside the head of this character. And one of the the joys of reading Sarong Party Girls is you get to inhabit Jaslyn's world (laughs) and, and Jazzy's kind of vision, even when you're appalled by it, you're still like, okay, what happens next? <laughs> yeah, and you know, we live in the age of, of the internet. If you, there's really a word that you're dying to know what it means, it's so easy to find out. Um, so I really, I really was opposed to that. And also, you know, I could have written Jazzy in more proper English, but it wouldn't have been as real because she really wouldn't speak like that. And it's, it's written first person. So it was very important for me um, that she would be read and heard exactly like she would be speaking. Um, and you know, I guess I you know I should explain some what Singlish is. So it's 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 um it's basically English. Most of the words are English, but there are some Malay words thrown in and Chinese words thrown in. And sometimes if the sentence doesn't seem to sound quite right, it's because maybe the words are English, but the sentence structure is Mandarin. So the words are not quite in the right place. Um, so yeah, so I just really um, I just really wanted to to convey that. Um, and also, you know, in recent years, the, the Singapore government has been, um, has been, ha- they've had this multi-million dollar campaign, speak good English campaign, to get people to speak less English. And, um, and, uh, and I've always, I've kind of, I've looked at that and, and thought, well, you know, it's, I know, I know, you know, you, you, you want to present Singapore as this sort of, like a world-class city where everyone speaks proper English, but you know we can we can do that, but also speak English. I think so. So this book is really, in some ways, a love letter to Singlish as well. Maybe read a little bit, and then I have some more questions. So okay. that's great. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to read from the first page of Sarong Party Girls to give you a sense of Singlish. Ayo, I tell you, if we do nothing, we are confirmed getting into Bang Balls territory. We have to figure out how to make this happen, and we have to do it now. After all, we've wasted enough time already, and we don't have any more time to waste. We are not young anymore, you know. Fan just turned 27, my 27th birthday is two months away, and Emos is not far behind. If we don't get married, engaged, or even nail down a boyfriend soon, my God, we might as well go ahead and book a room at Singapore Casket because our lives would already be over. In many ways in Singapore, our kind of age is already considered a bit left on the shelf. Ordinarily, I don't heck care about such things. Hello, Jazzy here knows she's quite power. Usually, unless the guy is blind or stupid or some shit, whatever guy I have my eye on, I also can get, even at my age. You ask any bookie out there, my odds are damn good. But it's true that Singaporean men are a bit fussy, especially when it comes to older girls. 
But luckily for us, we still have one big hope, Ang Mo guys. That's what we need to be thinking about. These white guys, they really catch no ball about Asian ages. Us 20-something-year-old Asian girls, if you wear a tight, tight dress or short, short skirt, these angmos will still steam over you. Some of them even go for the really old ones. 30-year-old women also have chance. I'm actually really glad, too, that you mentioned Jane Austen and you mentioned Emma, although I was actually thinking a lot of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> yes. And I just want to read a little section from Charlotte Lucas uh, talking to Elizabeth Bennet. Um, and she says... Without thinking highly either of men or matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honorable provision for well-educated young women of small fortune, and however uncertain of giving happiness, must be the pleasantest preservative from want. This preservative she had now obtained, and at the age of 27, without having ever been handsome, she felt all the good luck of it. I'm not romantic, you know. I never was. I ask only a comfortable home. And considering Mr. Collins's character, connections, and situation in life, I am convinced that my chance of happiness with him is as fair as most people can boast on entering the marriage state. So I, I see this connecting wonderfully with several of the characters, including Jazzy's friend. This is partly what Jazzy is avoiding. She wants a better marriage than just the preservative of, of want. Yes. And... One of the things I like about the novel, and I think you're doing something subversive here, with uh, writing a Jane Austen novel in Singlish in contemporary <laughs> Singapore. So can you talk a little bit about the having grown up with the English novel as what you're taught as the, the model to hold up to in terms of how we see the world and the ways in which you're responding to that kind of literature legacy, but also colonial legacy, because you and I both went through schools where uh, br British literature was presented as the pinnacle of literature. Yes, it's true. Uh, most of, uh, I grew up reading mostly British literature, um, and that's what we studied in school. Jane Austen, Chaucer, um, you know, if you want to talk about satire, one of the earliest um, uh, examples of, of social satire that I really loved was uh, was Sheridan, uh, School for Scandal. And uh, and I, I, I remember I loved that so much. And in some ways, as I was writing Sarong Party Girls, I was like, you know, these characters, it's like they're kind of spiraling out of control, but, um, but sort of the foppishness of the situation and the people sometimes, uh, it kind of reminded me of that as well. Um, and so those were really the books that I, I grew up reading and sort of really understanding this kind of um, the sort of old, like, like British society, and um, and 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 yeah, I'm not saying um, I buy into it. And Jazzy certainly doesn't really buy into it. But you know, just sort of understanding that as kind of in sometimes um, the structure of a society that you're in, even if you didn't choose it, and then how do you navigate that? Um, so I guess that's the part where you know it's modern Singapore. Jazzy looks at this. She's a very practical person. She looks at this landscape and she goes, "How am I going to win?" You know, and so she comes up with this ticket that she thinks is going to help her win at marriage. Yeah, the word win, Jazzy uses a lot about uh, how... And it's a very Singaporean thing. Um, one of, you know, one of the our, uh, de the defining national characteristics 
um, of many Singaporeans and our prime minister, our, our, our government has talked about this, um, is that we're kiasu. And the term means uh, afraid to lose. So you're so afraid to lose that you will do everything you can to win. <laughs> and, you know, whether that means you're going to make your kids study for like, you know, do study for like Chinese proverbs for like six hours a day or like whatever, like you're going to do it because you want to win. And Jazzy is very much that way. Like she, she really wants to win and she really wants to win at this marriage thing. And so she's come up with this strategy on how to do it. So one of the things you mentioned that your journalism led you to explore when you were back visiting Singapore is the dark underbelly of the nightlife. And we really see this in the novel when Jazzy goes to one of the KTV lounges. Can, can you read the section of okay. the book that has that event? Okay, so KTV lounges um, in Singapore are very prevalent. You'll see them all over the place. And, um, and they're mostly for men. There are some that are family friendly now, but, but they're mostly for men. And it's, it's, a, it's a part of doing business for many men in Singapore uh, to take people when clients are visiting or just you know, each other, um, to take the, your clients out to KTV lounges and basically spend a lot of money. And um, you go there, you basically pick girls, um, and and they come, and they pour you drinks, and they sit next to you, and they're kind of your girlfriend for the night, and if you want more, they're more, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was always, um, my friends, uh, I have a lot of, I have friends who are my age uh, who who have to do this for work, and I have to bring people out. And I was always very troubled by this um, for several reasons. First of all, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a female working with these guys, you can't go to KTV lounges with them, so you're missing out on this whole level of socializing uh, and on a corporate level that, men, that only men can do. And on the other level, you don't want to be there. It's, it's disgusting from everything I've heard. <laughs> and, and just the idea of, of men having to do this as part of their job and the wives kind of having to look away, that, that really troubled me. And I remember, I still remember one of my friends um, told me, he said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife. Like, I love her so much. I only do Japanese baths when I go to these KTV lounges. And I'm like, okay, well, what's that? And he said, well, they strip you and they bathe you and, you know, they, they, you know, they, they give you a happy time. But it's not sex, you know. I'm I it, I'm not cheating on my wife, and I'm like, it pretty much sounds like cheating to me. <laughs> so, um, so the more of these stories I heard, the more I started to get um, disillusioned with with uh, how the patriarchy was manifesting itself, even in modern Singapore. And um, and I'm not saying all guys do this, but I'm saying that I knew enough of them that it and and enough of their wives who kind of had to turn away from it that it made me a little queasy. So I really wanted to bring that into the book, and it was actually a natural thing to bring into the book. Um, so this is a chapter where Jazzy um, is brought into a KTV lounge situation because um, one of her friends invites her, and it's her first time there, and she kind of realizes how things actually go down. After Kimming settled in next to me, the mama-san got serious. Tonight, do you want butterfly or by the hour, she asked. Kimming looked at his watch. It was 9 p.m., not much time left in the early shift, he said. We'll do the hourly girls. Butterfly, wasting time only. Butterfly? Kidman could see from my face that Jazzy here catch no ball. So he came closer and whispered. Butterfly girls fly from one room to the other. These girls split one hour among four rooms, so you only get each one for 15 minutes. It's cheaper, yes, but not so worth it right now. The late shift is starting soon. The girls, the drinks, everything gets much more expensive then. Better get our fun in quickly. Mr. Tay... The girls, the usual kind, Mama-san asked. Kinming looked around at the guys. He seemed to be mentally calculating something. 
Tonight, we have a range of tastes. Just bring a variety so people can pick, he said. You know what kind I like, but also throw in one with big breasts, a tall one with very nice legs. Hey, Sam, these days, what are you in the mood for? Hmm, Sam asked. Sam said, you got new China girls? Mama-san nodded. Okay, then China la, Sam said. Madam, he shouted after the Mama-san as she started to leave the room. Very young ones, okay? Mama-san disappeared, returning a few minutes later with ten girls, all of them looking cheerful and smiling, all of them wearing sexy shiny dresses. Mama-san was good la. The group had a few girls fitting each of Kinming's descriptions. Plus, the young China girls Sam ordered were wearing dark red lipstick and tight mini chongsams with big slits down each side. I say, Sam said quite loudly, jumping up so he could inspect them closely, as if he'd never seen women in his life before. Nigel got the big boobs one. George picked one with such long legs she looked like a runway model. And Kinming chose a Korean-ish girl with the same look as the girls he had showed me in his phone. Sam was taking quite long to pick from the three China girls. How, he said, turning to look at Kinming. Boss, cannot take it la. All of them also make me steam. Can I have two? Don't even think about it, Kinming said. As if you can handle more than one. Hurry up, you're holding everyone up. So Sam just did an eeny meeny miny mo and ended up with the shortest, smallest one. So small, in fact, that she looked like she was just about 14. The leftover girls quietly left. Once the girls sat down next to their guys, they started mixing drinks. Come, come, Big Boob said. Let's bottoms up. And so that's the beginning of the KTV lounge scene. And I think what we see in this moment is part of Jazzy's turn to understand herself a little better and to see how, how she is in her own way being treated uh, badly as an object of, of sexual desire by the man. True. She realizes at that point how even her friends in certain social situations see women as just property to be kind of picked like, uh, you know, you're, you're getting takeout food at, a, at the food court. Like, where, what do you want to eat today? Do you want to eat Mexican food or do you want to eat Chinese food? You know, like, what do you feel in the mood for? And she, um, you know, her stomach starts to turn at this point. And, you know, the, that chapter was actually really hard for me to write and, and perhaps hard to read as well. But it was very well researched because I didn't want to get anything wrong. I didn't want, you know, I've never been in a KTV lounge, not because I didn't want to. I begged my friends to take me and none of them would take me. And I actually, it's hard for me to go on my own because the mama-san will be like, what are you doing here? You know, and so none of my friends would take me, but they said, look, you can ask us any questions questions you want. So I interviewed my friends, interrogated them, and I got all their stories. So the stories in that KTV Lounge chapter are actually based on, um, you know, my unnamed male friends who <laughs> provided me with all this information. Um, and uh, and it's so it was actually very, very well researched because I didn't want to get anything wrong. This is a question that um, always comes up with literature of the post-colonial world, I think, is in writing for an American audience. Um, what is your sense of audience? And um, your your first publisher is American in the case of both books. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you see your role here as a kind of translator, presenter? <laughs> writer or, in exile. Writer in exile, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I live in New York. I used to live in Brooklyn. And you know, some I've had some friends ask me, like, why don't you write a, a, a Brooklyn novel? Doesn't everyone do that? <laughs> um, but Brooklyn to, party girls. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, but for me, the more important story for me to tell is the story of my country. Um, I'm still Singaporean. Um, I, my friends in Singapore, some of them say that I became more Singaporean after I left. Um, you know, I, I, I love the country so much. I love explaining the country to, um, to people because it's such a small place and it's so weird. Um, you know, it's really wealthy, but it's also really weird. And like, you know, and some people have called it North Korea light. And uh, it's just so, there's so many rules. Um, you know, people come to me with strange questions like, I just went to Singapore. Why is it that all the trees are perfectly spaced apart? And that's actually true because everything is so regulated and so, um, so everything is just so perfect all the time. Um, but at the same time, it's a very complex place. And I keep trying to convey that. And, you know, Singapore to me has endless stories that I want to tell. Um, you know, and I will, I feel like I could spend the next 30 years writing about Singapore and, and, you know, I would, I would be so happy. But that's been kind of my main mission when you ask me why I write. Um, it's really trying to explain this place that I have this complex relationship. I love it, uh, but I don't live there, but I go back all the time. I think about it all the time. Um, and uh, it's really trying to explain this place and bring it to life uh, to the rest of the world in the, in the way that I see it. Great. Um, which leads me to segue into, I hope not too intrusive a question, but what is it you're working on now? Uh, I'm working on uh, my next novel. It's also set in Singapore, though in a very different uh, part of Singapore. Um, there are no, uh, no uh, Sarong Party Girls in it. Uh, there is a little bit of Singlish in it, but it's set in a very um, different, uh, it's set in a very different social setting. So the people in it are speaking more proper English than, than the, the, the Singlish jazzy is speaking. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, I can't wait to share um, and we'll see what happens. Well, I can't wait to read what you're writing next. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. It's a bold and funny and beautifully written book, and I hope our audience will go out and read it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Check out more of our podcast episodes, complete with show notes that have lots of extra information at leslie.edu slash podcast. Next week, we're speaking with Michelle Knudsen, author of the creepy, funny, evil librarian series. Here's a clip from our interview. I want to touch my book every day. In the initial stages, you know, that could be like just jotting down some notes, like anything that's putting me in touch with the story, even if it's notes on my phone, like while I'm on the subway, uh, just so my brain is engaged with it and I can, I can at least believe that my subconscious is working on it, even if I'm not.